take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Very last book. We're going to be in chapter 5. You may recall last week we were going to cover chapter 4 and 5. As you know, I'm quite adventurous in that way. And, uh, and we didn't. <laughs> we left it for today. But before we dive in, friends, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, you are a great God, an amazing God, a powerful God. God, you know the end from the beginning. You know the, the issues of each heart here today, the burdens that we carry, our needs different like all of our faces, God. But only a God as great as you are can meet these needs. I know that there is joy in this room, and I know that there is sadness. There is a heaviness of heart, but God, I pray that today you will meet the needs of your children in a way that will shock them. So God, we ask, Spirit of God, that you will teach us here today your word, that you will align our understanding with the truth so that we might walk in it, and that you would be glorified in our lives as our lives are transformed. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. It was the spring of 1947, the Sea of uh, Galilee, and uh, not the Sea of Galilee. It was, uh, it was uh, along the uh, rocks, and uh, the, these Bedouin uh, goat herders are searching the cliffs for what Bedouin goat herders are always looking for, goats who have wandered away. And they are scouring the caves, and they are getting frustrated. One of these young men bent down to pick up a rock and throw it in a cave, maybe startling this goat to come out if it were in there. But what he heard was a crash, as if something had been broken by this rock. The boy gathered the others, and they began to search these caves, and what they found inside were clay pots with Hebrew texts dating back to 200 B.C. I mean, they went way back. These were the old stuff, and they were in really good shape. These, are, uh, these scrolls are now referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These scrolls go back farther than any of the Old Testament scrolls that we had. And it gave us an opportunity to take a look and say, are the texts that we have reliable? I mean, we were very confident that they were. And in examining these texts, we found that the Older Testament was exactly reliable, that nothing had changed in these texts, in all of the transmissions and copies and all of these things. The Word of God was accurate. It was a great find, finding these scrolls. So much to be learned. So much to be confirmed. It was a good day to find a scroll. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And friends, today we're going to read about a scroll that someone else wanted to find out what was in him. I mean, these scrolls had been practically and functionally lost Thousands of years they were found. Now, as you know, in the, uh, the revelation of, of Christ, John, 
the disciple John. He is uh, on the Isle of Patmos. This is a prisoner isle. The Australia that uh, we would know that was once a prison colony. This Isle of Patmos was about the same thing. And he was there because he was preaching the truth of the Word of God. He was preaching the gospel exactly how he had been asked to do, commanded by his Savior and mine, Jesus. And there was opposition. And while he was there, he had the opportunity of a lifetime. You say, how could it be any better than walking those three years following Jesus, seeing these miracles day after day? Such power, calming a stormy sea, raising up a a crippled man to walk, a blind man from birth. And he healed them all. And then the truths that he taught. How could it be better than that? And the reason it's better than that is because it first impacts you and I. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ... If you have uh, been born again by faith in Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he died for our sins, he died in our place, then this is your future he's talking about. You see, John gets a glimpse of heaven. And as a matter of fact, the wonderful thing is he's not the only one to have done that. I mean, the apostle Paul got to see heaven but he never wrote about it. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble about it. But for John, he gives these words, write. Write these things. In chapter 1, we have this uh, divine uh, outline given to us of this book. In chapter 1 and verse 19, you find the outline of uh, the book of Revelation. The, the first one is, write the things you have seen. Chapter 1, this description of the glorified Christ. It is uh, profound. It is amazing. It is shocking even because he's not that reed bent in the wind anymore. He's not the guy being chased across the land side. Oh, he is a glorified Christ. And then uh, we come to the second section, which is this. The things you have seen and the things that now are. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus walks among the churches. You can imagine even just in the, the back of your mind if someone were to walk through these aisles, knowing the hearts, the minds, the thoughts that are going on even now, the attitudes and the priorities except Jesus writes them a letter. Each of these seven churches not only gets a personalized letter, that letter is passed along to all of the other six, recorded and preserved for us today. And so the things that now are, the condition of the church, I haven't mentioned this. Some uh, had believed that uh, each one of these churches represents an age in the church. And uh, perhaps you hold that position. I'm not sure that I'm convinced of that. There's certainly familiarities in all of the churches to every church in every age. Certainly we could find some similarities to Family Bible Church in each of these. And even on a more personal level in our own lives. Then we come to chapter 4. Everything changed in chapter 4. Amazing chapter because... The door is opened on the throne room of heaven. 
And the first thing that John sees is a throne. And the Father is sitting on the throne. And the descriptions that John uses, uh, the term jasper, some, uh, theolo- some uh, commentators think that, that that's diamonds. And you remember the imagery we use? Think of when light hits these diamonds and there is a discotheque on the ceiling and the various colors. You know, and we, we see that in all kinds of opportunity with in the parking lot and a puddle that oil is hit and the colors are spread about. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the most unusual thing. And I wonder if there was a dress in heaven that some saw blue and black, but others were convinced it was white and gold. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, good for you. <laughs> but surrounding the throne, Remember, this description of four living creatures, face of an ox and one like a, an eagle in flight. And all of these were, were similes. They're, they're metaphors. It didn't say that this guy was an ox head. It was Lyca. And you say, these mysterious people, who are they? And you remember, all we had to do was check the, the center column here, and uh, we, we looked at the, uh, the references uh, of how things are tied together in the Scripture, and we, we said, hey, wait a minute. The same description is found in Ezekiel chapter 1. Hey, Ezekiel knew about these guys too. And then we went to chapter 10, and he identified who these people were. They were the cherubim. The cherubim. Remember, the cherubim were the uh, uh, were the, the the people around the throne, and uh, they are angels. And remember, back in uh, Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve had sinned, and God said, "Out you go." God placed a cherubim at the entrance of the garden to keep them out, guards guarding around the throne. And uh, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 28 in that uh, famous passage describing what many believe is, is, is Lucifer himself, describing him as the guard, a chief cherubim himself, standing around the, the, the throne room of God, all of his worship and glory around, and he wanted to keep it for himself. Chapter 4, 24 elders. Well, you all remember that from last week. And if you don't, it's up on our website. You can listen again. All right. But here we are in chapter 5. And I don't know if you can tell. I'm really excited about this whole thing. I'm going to run a hole through this carpet here because this is heaven. This is what we long for. And it is not about what's there and what, what we can see there. It's about who is there. Remember, as we study this book, it is all about Jesus. He is our hope, and he is our reward. So take a look uh, here uh, about this scroll, remember, I was talking about. Notice in verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 5, we find that the Father is holding a scroll with seven seals. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, I know that some of you in this room, because you are crazy, uh, we're imagining little seals with beach balls on their nose. Raise your hand. Admit it. Come on, right now. There it is right there. I saw it. All right. Now, what we have here is this uh, rolled-up scroll written on both sides. So apparently significant amount of information written on here. And then it had seven seals. 
Now think about seals, not the ones with beach balls on their nose here. Come on, knock it off. It's amazing the stuff I don't talk about in a sermon, I'll tell you. All right, and so, uh, so these seals, apparently, as you unrolled, uh, unfurled this scroll, they were at seven points where there was a seal that had to be broken to go in. Now, seals, significant in the Bible times. Now, we, we lick the envelope better off. We peel off that thing and just, you know, and it's sealed. It's protected. Seven points here. There is something in this scroll that is the right hand of the Father. And let's face it, you want to know what's in there, don't you? Yeah, I, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> she just seen her eyes got really big. Yeah, yeah, tell me what it is, because that's how I'm feeling. And remember, John is the one witnessing this. And, and, and notice it's, it's sealed, it's sealed for privacy. First off, I saw in the right hand, he's, he's, and he's got these seven seals on it. Now, oddly enough, here we are in the book of Ezekiel again in chapter 2. Ezekiel had this, uh, the same similar vision. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written on it. And he spread it before me, and it had the writing on the front and the back. And there were written on it words of lamentations and mourning and woe. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. But it was sealed. It was sealed for privacy. But it wasn't just sealed for privacy. It was sealed because it was only to be opened by one with authority. Remember, the Romans were big on this. When they crucified Jesus and uh, he was placed in a tomb, they put a seal around the tomb. And it was a warning sign. Touch this. And you die. It was placed on by the authorities. And here the Father has the seal. Sealed for privacy. Sealed only to be opened by one with authority. And notice verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a, a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? good question. And that's when the crisis hits heaven. No one was found worthy to open it. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And notice verse 4 here. John's response to what he's seeing. And I became, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Well, well, come on, John, settle down here, you know. Maybe we're not supposed to know about this yet. I mean, just live with the ignorance here for a little bit. Why is John weeping about this? Could it be? that John is realizing the God who is a God who desires to be known, who paints something about him in the sunset. As you walk along the road and see the grass that is growing, the color, it's out there and it's coming here soon. It's just around the corner. 
And, and spring is that explosion of colors. And all of it is the handiwork of God that when we look at it, we say, wow, God is amazing. And yet here is this scroll that is sealed and no one can open it. Why is John weeping? I believe John's weeping because the contents would remain forever hidden. Something that had been written, and you only write something so that something, somebody can read it, is now trapped shut. And John perhaps is, is weeping because he realizes the loss. Does this still not feel... What is, this, is it really a reason to cry about? And, and maybe that thought tells us something about ourself and the Word of God. I mean, as I studied this and thought about this this week, it made me wonder, what would be the response if our Bibles just disappeared? What what would be left? What would your response be to that? Question number one, would you notice it? I mean, do you consider your Bible, you know, the one on the shelf, the one in the back of your car? Something to be, well, you know, uh, that's okay. I didn't read it anyway. Or would this bring tears to your eyes? It's the Word of God. I mean, the Creator God who says, I want you to know me. And I write out all of these things so that you can understand who I am. Begin a relationship with me. Understand what stays in the way or gets in the way so you can get rid of it. It is an invitation to a relationship with an amazing God. And we look at it sometimes, let's be honest, like a textbook. It's the Sunday book. Now it's a book of life. And John got that. John understood that if we missed a single word that God had said, we are poorer for it. Hmm. Well, no one is found worthy in heaven to open forever hidden, a loss for all of us. And as John is weeping, in verse 5, we see this. And one of the elders, remember the 24 elders, likely, very likely, angels, said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seas, seals. And so the Son is found worthy to open it. The Son of God is there. Now, how do we know he's talking about the Son of God? He's talking about another animal again. Remember, Revelation, full of images. That's the, the very nature of the genre of apocalyptic literature. Remember, apocalyptic simply means uh, revealing, to make something known. Now, the fact is that if you know the book of Revelation enough, there's some things that are made known that are scary. So we associate apocalypse with scary stuff. But here, 
out of nowhere, coming around the corner perhaps, the Son of God says, give it to me. And notice this description. He is first described as a lion. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. The Son of God is described in two ways. The first is a lion. The first is a lion. And when Jesus comes again, he will not come as a lamb to be slain. He will come as a lion to conquer. He will come as a lion with his strength and his roar, and people will fear. But when, when he came the first time, you know, Christmas, he came as the Lamb of God. And remember, the, the imagery of the Lamb takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus in chapter 12. You see, there, there is this type, this, this shadow, this, this uh, event that points us to Jesus. Back in the Older Testament, Exodus chapter 12, something called the Passover. Remember the people of uh, Israel. They're slaves. They're captives in the land of Egypt. And they have been this way some 400 years. And God raised up a man named Moses. And he sent him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. But Pharaoh said, no. And sure enough, God brought about these plagues, 12 of them to be precise, all of them attacking the gods of Egypt whom the Egyptians were trusting in, proving that God is God himself. He is Lord. He is the king of creation. He is Lord over all. But then comes the lamb. The very 12th uh, sign of these, uh, these plagues here was this. The people of Israel were to take a lamb but not just any lamb, a lamb without spot, a lamb without sin, a lamb without defect. And they were to kill that lamb. Something about this whole sign here, this whole shadow, is something about a spotless lamb that has to die. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and place it over their door, the posts and the lintel. They applied this by faith. Everything about this is faith. They hear God saying, go kill the best lamb you got. Well, we were saving that guy. Well, we're going to waste him just spreading that all of It's messy, and we just cleaned the house. I mean, you can think of all of the responses to this. I mean, if you were asked, just go home and take your puppy, you know, the really adorable one with the fluffy ears and everything, and take its life. How offensive that would sound. This perfect, spotless lamb. And by faith, when they responded in faith to what God had said, this lamb died, his blood shed, then the angel of death would pass over their house. In other words, this response of faith would secure for them life. It's an image of what Jesus did. Jesus, the lamb of God came and took on humanity. He, he took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived with us. He knew hunger. He knew pain. He knew so many things that we experience. 
but he came to die, and his blood was shed. And by faith, when you trust in what Jesus did in dying on a cross for my sin and yours, you are given new life, and death will pass from you. I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about the one that matters, spiritual. Here is this image of this lamb. This lamb, as John describes him, as though it had been slain. And these are the images of Jesus, the lion and the lamb. And with seven eyes, seven eyes. When you have eyes, you know what's going on. You look around. The more eyes you got, I would imagine the more confusing it would be, unless you're God. Remember, all of these are images. Let's say Jesus is walking around with seven eyes. This is an image of who Jesus is, and he is the one that knows. But then notice also this, and with the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Remember the word seven is about completion or full, maturity, reaching the end. And they went out into all of the earth. And so there is Jesus who stands up, and everyone knows that he is worthy. But notice his action. We have his description as a lion and a lamb. Notice verse 7, his action. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He just walked up to God the Father sitting on this amazing throne with an emerald rainbow on top of it, surrounded by these ominous cherubim. And he took the scroll. I wonder how many people how many people, how many of God's creation could walk up to the throne of God and say, I'm going to open it? Only one. When I thought about this, it reminded me in, in 1963, Look Magazine. You, you probably were all uh, well aware of that Look Magazine, but it, you'd have to go back a ways. You know, older folks will get that. And you'll remember this picture if you were around back then. It was a picture of uh, JFK sitting at his desk, John F. Kennedy. And, uh, and, and there he was uh, at work, very important, very presidential. And uh, he was sitting at uh, this, this beautiful desk, and it had a little door. You know where your legs go, that opening? And there was a little door that opened. And uh, that had been installed for, you know, a previous president to kick his legs out a little bit. And this, this desk was called the Resolute Desk. It's a beautiful desk. Look up the picture. Just Google it. And then peeking out of this little door was JFK Jr. Little Johnny, little, little boy, adorable. It's a beautiful picture. And, and it just smacks of family, of relationship, of nearness. There wasn't a lot of people that just could walk in the presidential office and climb underneath that desk without security being everywhere. But the intimacy and the relationship that JFK had with his father, you know, was just, was just resplendent in this picture. And there were a lot of people that uh, they made posters of this and people bought it because it was like what they want to see in a first family. They didn't make posters of the other stuff from that presidency because they didn't want to see that stuff in the first, uh, you know, first family. But, uh, but, uh, but, but here's this picture, and 
Why, why was Jesus able to do that? Because he was the Son of God? No, it was because of what he had accomplished. Because he was indeed the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember, the tribe of Judah was the kingly line. The kings of Israel were to come from the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and, and remember, that got more specific as time went on. It was not just the tribe of Judah, but it was to be the line of David. And so, so, so you, you went from Abraham, and uh, then you went from Jacob and uh, Judah, his son, and, and, and just the line got tighter and tighter of who we ought to look for. And that's why when you turn to the New Testament, one of the first pages you see is a genealogy about Jesus. Trace him back. He fits the, the exact description that was given. He is the, the right family. He is of the right line. He is the one that God had promised. And so here, here they are in this uh, description of a line of lamb. But notice his action. He just walked up worthy and authoritatively. He was the right person. He didn't have to softly step and look around. And you've done that before, haven't you? I bet you when we, uh, when we have communion here today, you're going to do the very same thing. There's this moment when everything is lined up and, and it's time to come and you look around. Somebody else has got to go first, but Jesus didn't. There was no one else like him and there is no one else like him. And he stepped with authority and took the scroll. Well, we see the description, the lion and the lamb, is action worthy and authoritatively he takes the scroll. And then the response of heaven. There has just been this moment of crisis. Who? Who will open the scroll? Is there anyone found worthy? And all of heaven erupts in worship. I want you to notice first in verse 8, the response of heaven is, A, they fall down before him. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Angels are not mediators. We don't pray to angels but angels have responsibilities in heaven, and perhaps they are the ones that bring these prayers to God. Isn't it beautiful to say that they didn't get lost someplace in the clouds? They're not in a storage room somewhere in the back of heaven. Someone put them in a box and nobody labeled them. But right before the throne of God are the prayers of the saints right before him. And so the response of heaven. Now we're talking about worship. And you can't miss it when you're studying this book. It is all about worship. Remember what worship is? The expression of our adoration of God. And how do we express it? Well, take a look here. First off, these guys are falling down. And that's one of those things that uh, people do to angels all the time. Angels showed up and like, don't fear. Come on, get up off the ground. But when these angels stand in the presence of God, they fall down on their faces. And so they, when, when, when he had taken the scroll, these four living creatures, the cherubim, the 24 elders, uh, they're each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, where, which are the prayers of the saints. And so they fall down in worship. But notice also this verse 9. 
And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God and from every tribe and any language and people of nations. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And so their worship began with falling down, but it included a new song. Singing is an act of worship. That's one of those things that we perhaps think of first. Worship looks a lot like singing. Well, it does, but that's not all that worship looks like. So they're falling down and they're singing this new song of praise. And I noticed that once some, some of them began, the numbers grew then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. How's that for a non-specific number? In other words, this chorus of praise and worship to the Lamb just grew. That's the way worship is. Someone begins and talks about God. People hear in and they respond to what they're hearing whether it's in song or whether it's in speech. And notice this. It wasn't just a song. Verse 12. And they were saying with a loud voice. And so they went from singing to saying to speaking words of praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven And on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders did what the elders do. They fell down and they worshiped him. What a beautiful picture picture of what is going on in heaven that ought to be happening in the church. And so in a little bit when we sing, friends, make it worship, not just a song. The song is not worship unless the heart of adoration is engaged. When our thoughts are lifted to heaven and we think of who God is and what he has done, And we offer him thanksgiving and the praise he deserves. Let me say a little Bible to go here. Certainly something that we can uh, agree on in just a cursory study of these uh, couple of chapters, four and five. And that is this, that worship is the ambiance of heaven. It is the feel of heaven. It is the atmosphere of heaven. It is all centered on God and every correct response to him. Is worship. And remember that worship is a response, the response of all who know God. When you are in a relationship with God, you will worship Him. You when you know Him, you will love Him, and in loving Him, you will worship Him. And then here's the darker side of the question. If worship is not your thing. If this does not excite you to think to see him, to know him, and to worship him does not look like a great future to you, maybe heaven isn't your home. 
Or maybe you just don't get it yet. Maybe you don't know him well enough. You're just starting the journey. What is all this excitement about? You don't know Jesus if you're not worshiping him. In a uh, 37-second clip that has uh, gone viral like many videos on the uh, Internet, this video has led to intense criticism in the recent days. One Victoria Osteen, who is the uh, co-pastor of Lakewood Church, Houston, Texas. She was doing a bit of teaching at this uh, 10,000-member church about worship. And she explained to her church that worship isn't really about God. I'm not kidding. She said, worship is really about us. I mean, she said, uh, you know, you could think of it that way as about God, but it's really about us. You see, because when we worship, then we're happy. And after all, that's all God really wants anyway. And all God's people turned their head and spat. Because if worship is about anything, it is about God. God. 